Well, here we are. It's the third Sunday in Advent, and we're talking about the fact that the gospel is unique. Why do we have Advent? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Something unique happened. Something unique is at stake. Now, you probably heard it said, you know, sardonically, sarcastically, you are unique. You are so unique, just like everybody else. Uh, you've heard people referred to as snowflakes. Oh, you're so unique, just like all the zillions of snowflakes out there. But the fact is but that we're all unique, unrepeatable miracles of God's grace. That's the amazing declaration of the gospel. And the reason the gospel, uh, the good news of Jesus, can make that claim with authority and credibility is that the gospel itself is unique. This thing that God has done is unique. And we're going to explore that this morning. Uh, Mary and Joseph uh, are at the center of this unique celebration that we call Advent and Christmas, obviously. And they were uniquely suited to fulfill their unique mission. Now, let me start by telling you what was not unique about them. Uh, They weren't unique in their humanity. They were uh, not perfect or sinless. That might come as a shock to you, uh, that they were not perfect or sinless. What they were was righteous. They were rightly related to God. Uh, they had demonstrated that God could, I guess, take a risk, uh, be vulnerable, right, uh, and trust them. Uh, and we're going to see where that goes. Uh, they weren't unique in their desire to marry and have a family of their own. They were betrothed. Uh, they lived in Nazareth. What's Nazareth? Uh, nothing. And so they would pretty much blend in. Uh, a young couple, they're going to get married. Not much unique about that. Uh, they weren't unique in their Jewish identity or in their modest circumstances. Pretty much everybody in Israel was living modestly, especially in a place like Nazareth. And their identity was that, well, we're, we're Jewish and uh, proud of it. But that wasn't unique. Pretty much everybody that they knew and uh, lived around them was, was Jewish. The only people that were the interlopers were, were the Romans. And some of the people who'd been brought in following an earlier captivity in the history of Israel so that there were Gentiles, non-Jews, the worst of whom were the soldiers that dominated the, the land. But pretty much everybody in their world was Jewish. And so that wasn't that unique. They weren't unique in their prayers for the Messiah to redeem Israel. This is the hope of every true blue Jew. Let's pray that the Lord will keep his promises and restore us and redeem us. And they weren't unique then in their hope for Israel to be a free and great nation again. So all, all of that was pretty conventional, uh, normal, straight ahead. What would one expect? And, and that's true for all of us. Uh, we share universal aspirations. We share universal aspirations. Everybody in every country wants to be uh, a happy family. They want peace in their land. They want their crops to grow. They want uh, the economy to function. They want their children to do well. So these are human aspirations anywhere you go. Uh, That's why there's the joy in travel. Uh, Oh, to travel again. When you get to connect with people from different cultures and beyond all the differences and all the barriers, there are those bridges uh, that we connect over. Uh, Food, laughter, uh, telling stories, the human condition, uh, all, all very typical. But within that, each of us are unique. You're a unique version 
of who you are in your culture, who you are in your family, depending on your birth order and your experience of your family. I'm the eldest of five kids, and everybody has a, their own take on uh, what it means to be in our family. We have some shared experiences and perspectives, but everybody has their own unique take on what it was like growing up. So there's something powerful about that. Universal aspirations, but unique capacities based on our experiences. So what are your unique capacities that are supporting your unique mission in the Lord? Now you might say, well, I don't have a unique mission in the Lord. Well, you really do. You really do. Why? Because you have unique proximity. There are people that you can connect with that I can't. There are situations that you'll be involved in and with that I won't. There's some circumstances that you're in needs that you're going to be respond to that nobody else will be as able uh, to respond to as you. And so you do have a mission. Your mission is to be fully alive in Christ and to see where that leads you. It's unique to you, even though it might be a universal aspiration for all followers of Jesus. Lord, I want to know and do your will. But you have a unique shape, a spiritual gift that God has given you if you have put your faith in him. Uh, aptitudes, things you know how to do. Uh, a heart for certain things. So spiritual gifts, S. A heart, H. Aptitudes, A. A, a personality, P, right? A unique personality that makes you you. Even people who have a similar personality are unique in their expression of that personality. And finally, you have unique experiences. Even if other people have done similar things, your experience is unique. So take those four letters, S-H-A-P-E, and you have a shape, that's the acronym, for your uniqueness. And it's part of your uniqueness that allows you to be effective in your mission. Even if you're in a partnership with other people in the same mission, this is the power and the beauty of how God has created us to relate to all other people in many ways and yet to have a unique sense of our own place in the world. Now, one of the things that is a head fake is that our culture will, will try to rank us and place us and say, this is how important you are or not. This is why you're special or not. It can be given, it can be taken away. Uh, everybody who's really good at something and is at the top of their game knows that somebody is coming up behind me. I won't always be the, the king of the hill. And that can be very discouraging and, and, and really dispiriting if we let it. Otherwise, we can say, you know what? At every age and stage, I have a unique role to play in my mission for God. And that's powerful. That keeps us fresh. It keeps us alive. It keeps us interested and curious. It keeps us interesting and approachable when we are engaged in the world in that way. Not competing with people or comparing ourselves with people. Not living in the past, oh gosh, I used to be able to do that. Or not living in the future, I hope one day to do that. But rather living in the present, saying, I have a past, I have a future, and this is how I'm living right now. This unique and wonderful moment uh, that, that I'm in the midst of. It could be a horrible and a tough one like we're in with this pandemic. It could be a place where everything is going well. And rather than dreading that it will end and not go well, we need, simply need to be present. Okay, so what um, were the unique capacities supporting the mission of Mary and Joseph? Let's take a look at that. The first being that Mary and Joseph were chosen to be the parents of Jesus, the Messiah. On what basis were they chosen? Well, they had a shared genealogy. You see, in Matthew and in Luke, uh, two genealogies, similar, some overlap in them, but different. Why? Because one is Joseph's and one is Mary's. They were both from the house of David. 
they had a shared history, different family lines, uh, but, but a shared history. Uh, all of us would say we have a shared history in we're all descended from Adam. Now, however you believe uh, God created the world, uh, the way that we talk about that is we have a common source. So we have a shared history, even though we're very different and different expressions of that history culturally. So Mary and Joseph were chosen to be the parents of Jesus the Messiah because they had that commonality as descendants not only of Abraham, but of David. Second thing is that um, we see in Mary's case, Mary trusted in God above all else. Mary uh, was in a position to respond to a unique call of God in her life. Let's look at this. It's in Luke 1, 26 to 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, uh, this has just preceded this passage, uh, an angel appearing to Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, who is a priest. Uh, he's in the temple. He has a visitation from this angel who says to him, you know, you, you're old, you and your wife are old, but you're going to have a baby. His name is John. He'll be great in the eyes of the Lord, etc., etc." So the story continues with, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now this word virgin is, for some people, problematic. They say, well, this means a young woman. Well, it certainly does mean a young woman, but it means more than that. And we see in this context that it means more than that. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. If you grew up in a Catholic tradition, uh, you know these words as, a Hail Mary, full of grace. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. There's a lot of Jewish history rolled into that statement from the angel to Mary. And Mary's taking it all in. She knows the context. She knows the culture. She understands the magnitude of what the angel is saying, and it's a bit overwhelming to say the least. His kingdom will never end. Then Mary asks the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She uses this word again, but not just since I'm a young woman, but I'm a, I'm a young woman uh, with no sexual involvement, no sexual experience. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Oh, God will be the father of this child in some miraculous, unconventional way. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. So all things are possible with God, right? For no word, the angel says, from God will ever fail. This is powerful, this statement. No word from God will ever fail. All of God's commitments, all of his promises will be realized. You and I make all kinds of promises and commitments we hope and we intend uh, to fulfill. Uh, as somebody once said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But in, in God's case, everything he says 
happens. Everything he promises is fulfilled. Everything he claims, he does. So this is God speaking to Mary through the angel. And Mary, taking it all, says, uh, and says, I am the Lord's servant. She puts her trust in the Lord. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So here we see it. Mary trusted God above all else. Now, is that unique? Well, people trust God every day in all kinds of situations. But in this unique situation that, that is, is uh, God's call to Mary, she, in that unique situation, trusts in him. So this is a very unique experience for her. Now, why does it matter that Jesus was born of a virgin? This is often set aside, um, uh, neglected, um, underemphasized, uh, even by Christians. It's certainly rejected by people who don't believe that the Bible is God's word and, and, and don't accept this narrative. But even among people in the church these days, people don't want to talk about the virgin birth. They're a bit embarrassed about it. Uh, they, they can't really deny it, but they, they, they want to uh, diminish it in terms of its importance. And yet, it's, it's central to the narrative. It's central to the good news of the gospel. And the gospel is unique. And this is one of the components that makes it incredibly, importantly, essentially uh, unique. Why does it matter that Jesus was born of a virgin? Well, here's, here's a primary reason. We all share the consequences of Adam's sin. Jesus didn't. His father was God. We all share the consequences of Adam's sin. Jesus is the new Adam. Now, it, it's been said that if, if at, at the judgment day, God's sitting in judgment over people. A person could say, God, you don't even have a right to judge me because you don't know what it's like to be me. You don't know what it's like to be tempted as a human being. You don't know what it's like to suffer as a human being. You don't know what it's like to be betrayed or rejected. Of course, Jesus just holds up his hands and you see the nail marks. He shows them his side where he's been stabbed. He tells a bit of his story. Hebrew, uh, the writer of Hebrews says it this way. Uh, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus was the perfect, unblemished Passover lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He was uniquely qualified. If I were to say, hey, I, I want to take on the sins of the world upon myself, I would be uh, not qualified because somebody would say, well, you're a sinner. You're, you're, you've already got the blemish of sin. You've got the stain of sin. You've got the curse of sin hanging on you. You, you are not a worthy <laughs> source for taking away the sins of the world. But Jesus is. The unblemished Passover Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And it was essential that he be fully God and fully man. Fully man, he's born of Mary. Fully God, in that God is his Father. And notice that no claim is made for Mary's sinlessness. Full of grace, receiving God's favor, but she doesn't need to be sinless. Now, now why? Why is this an issue? I mean, she's blessed and full of grace, an exemplar of faith. Uh, we should be holding her up as absolutely someone to emulate in our own faith. Her immaculate conception is unnecessary. Uh, the term immaculate conception, uh, a Catholic doctrine, uh, a fairly recent Catholic doctrine relative to the history of the church, uh, is not necessary. The immaculate conception doesn't 
applied to Jesus. Uh, most Protestants think, oh, the Immaculate Conception, Jesus born miraculously or conceived miraculously. No, it's, it's, <clears throat> it refers to Mary. Uh, because in our own way, as people, we want to make things rational and logical. So, gosh, if, if, if Jesus is sinless, well, Mary must be sinless. How could somebody not perfect and sinless give birth to someone who is sinless? Uh, this is actually a platonic way of thinking. This is what Plato would say. Uh, the, you know, if there's a God, he's so far removed from us because to be close to us and involved with us would taint him as God. This is part of the scandal of the gospel, that Jesus comes into the world, born of a virgin, uh, but not a perfect person, and yet he's the perfect man. Well, another issue that is raised, isn't a divine or virginal conception a common claim in the ancient world? Well, yes, it is. Uh, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of stories, usually they, 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 they read pretty much as mythology, but lots and lots of claims are made in the ancient world for somebody's divine origin. Well, what do you do with that? Well, it just takes one fact to refute a thousand fabrications. That is, Jesus is one of a kind. There's a thousand and one stories out there about people with, who came from a divine origin. But they're of a different quality and magnitude, certainly, than what uh, the gospel presents Jesus as. I mean, Caesar was called the son of God. Nobody would confuse Caesar with God. That was an honorific, if anything. Nobody really thought he was really the Son of God. Or if they did, yes, he is the Son of God. It's that he's so far removed from anything that we would conceive as a perfect, sinless God uh, that it's really just saying you're a super version of a human being. Jesus' unique birth is confirmed in his unparalleled life and mission. Who did the things that Jesus did? Those thousand and one stories, Joseph Campbell wrote a story, uh, a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, basically saying there's lots of people out there who qualify mythically or historically as uh, on par with Jesus. Uh, he, he, Joseph Campbell's book was so compelling, George Lucas read it and said, okay, that's it, I want to create my own version of that. And so he created this, the Star Wars movies. But no other claim of virginal conception produced a perfect sinless person ever. Let that sink in. Verifiable sources attested to Jesus' sinlessness. They might have had these, these uh, other examples might have had uh, been attributed to uh, a divine origin, but none of them were sinless or perfect. None of them took on the sins of the world to save humankind. So Jesus' claims, character, and resurrection make him unique. So the first the first point was that uh, God had uniquely called Mary and Joseph to be the parents of the Messiah. The second point was that Mary uh, trusted in God above all else. The third point is similar. Joseph trusted in God above all else. Uh, he's not an also-ran in this race. Uh, it, it's often that J Joseph is appreciated but then neglected. Yeah, Joseph, well, yeah, okay. Let's talk about Mary. Let's talk about Jesus. Joseph has a key role to play, obviously, as the father of Jesus, the human father of Jesus, the one who shaped Jesus uh, as a father shapes a son. 
Joseph trusted in God above all else. This is so significant. Here's why. Matthew tells us in Matthew 1, 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Uh, Because they're betrothed and if she was uh, pregnant and he wasn't the father, that would be big disgrace and shame for Joseph. So the law would allow a man to say, hey, this is what's happened. This woman uh, deserves a death penalty. But Joseph, uh, being a righteous man, did not choose to uh, invoke that privilege or that right. Why? I'm guessing, I'm assuming, I'm reading between the lines, he held Mary in such high regard. In his mind it was, this is horrible, this is a disaster, this is heartbreaking, and this is not the Mary I know. She's a godly, righteous woman. And so I, I can't go through with this, I've been shamed and dishonored, but I'm not going to make a big deal about it, I'll do this quietly. But after he had considered this, Matthew tells us, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And now this word virgin is invoked again. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So we know that Jesus had subsequent stepbrothers and sisters. Jesus, unique, uh, is, is conceived uh, through the Holy Spirit by an act of God in the Virgin Mary. So what are we to make of these accounts reported to us by Luke and Matthew? Well, some claim this story is merely a ridiculous cover-up of an embarrassing scandal. Gee, if we're claiming that Jesus is God, we can't have this in the family history. We've got to get, we gotta scrub this up, fix this up, clean this up. Or some claim that this is a boast to improve Jesus' credibility with non-Jews. Hey, he has a divine origin. He's just like Caesar. Uh, Both of these are well-intended, I'm sure, or maybe not. But they're explanations that fall far short of the reality. Because the Gospels present it simply as God's work. No embarrassment, no boast. God is simply keeping his promises. He's fulfilling his promises. Remember what his word says, he does. We see this in the act of creation. Let there be light, there's light. He promised to Abraham, who put his trust in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He calls Mary, who puts her trust in God. He calls Joseph, who puts his trust in God. The entire scope of Jesus' mission is simply unique. He's a category of one. Lots and lots of other scripture supports this. I'll give you several examples. Uh, Paul writes to the Ephesians, There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ, Jesus Christ, 
Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, apportioned it. Paul writes to the Colossians, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And finally, he writes to the Romans saying, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As as the Apostle Peter said, there is no one else through whom we can be saved. It's a category of one. There is no other. He is unique. Unassailably, unequivocally unique. So Jesus is God's unique and repeatable gift of grace to each one of us. Have you received the gift? Have you received him into your life? And if you have, are you experiencing the gift of his life in a relationship with him? It's not just a moment long ago. It's a moment that creates momentum as we continue to grow in this grace, in our knowledge and love of God, in our capacity to recognize his unique call in our own lives to be part uniquely in his mission to the world. He knows what you need. He knows who you are. He knows where you're weak. He knows where you're strong. He's making you the best version of you. That's why we call him Lord. That's why we trust in him as Lord. We can depend on him. He does not let us down. Sometimes we assume he lets us down because the things we want don't happen in the way that we want them to happen. But as we look at it closely and we follow through on that, we realize God never, ever lets us down. God is always lifting us up. So trust is a theme in all this. Empathy, vulnerability, authority, credibility. Support trust. God's empathy and vulnerability expresses his authority and credibility. He entrusts imperfect people as partners in his work of redemption. It's shocking. See, empathy means I care. Vulnerability means I'm going to take risks. Authority comes out of that. Credibility comes out of that. Otherwise, instead of authority, what you have is just a a manifestation and an abuse of power. And instead of credibility, what you get is coercion. But out of profound, authentic empathy and vulnerability comes real authority and real credibility. And so we see then Mary's empathy and vulnerability gives her authority and credibility. She trusts in the Lord. Joseph's empathy and vulnerability gives him authority and credibility as he trusts in the Lord. Empathy and vulnerability gives you authority and credibility in your mission. Are you embracing that? Are you leaning in, opening your heart, your mind to the Lord? That's what empathy and vulnerability look like. You confess him as he is. Do you confess you as you are and allow him to do his work in you? That's where you will get authority and credibility. And you don't have to be perfect. You just need to know the perfect Lord and Savior of the world. Jesus, the one whom we honor in Advent and celebrate at Christmas. 
May that be the greatest gift that you savor and receive and in turn give to others. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you. that You are this unique, unrepeatable gift from God to us. And in you, we discover our own unique, unrepeatable giftedness as part of your body, the people of God, the body of Christ, a living temple, a holy kingdom, the household of God, a movement of your spirit. We thank you and praise you for that and commit ourselves to you in Jesus' holy name. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you that you might reflect his glory in what you say and in what you do. One day at a time, both now and forever, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.